together, and let's turn on our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Romans together, and we come to chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. If you're with us here today and you don't have a Bible, uh, men are coming up the aisles right now. You just flag them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand marked to our passage today. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today and uh, read it. It will absolutely uh, change your life. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes again by the Spirit of God. He said, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, speaking of the Jews according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are always thankful to turn to your word. What a sure foundation it is under our lives and, and uh, under our feet and related to our eternity. And we just pray that you would speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit, through your word, and to each one of our hearts from this passage. There's something that you want to instruct us concerning, something you want to build into our lives, and we pray that you would give us a sensitivity to your Spirit. We pray that this would not be merely an intellectual uh, exercise or as wonderful as, as that is in its own way, but today as we study this passage, it would be deeply spiritual and that you would speak to us right from your throne right where we are, Lord, in our life and in our relationship with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In coming to chapters 9 through 11 of the, the book of Romans, it is, uh, it, we come now, as we did a bit of a preface to it last time, to a, a new section of the book of Romans. Is written principally to Jews, uh, but it has it, it has much to say to us as, as uh, Gentile Christians as well. But Paul uh, addresses this section of Romans to, uh, as the entire letter goes to a church that is located in Rome, a church that is made up of Jews and made up of Gentiles, all now become Christians. And uh, Paul uh, recognizes that as he writes these first uh, eight chapters of the book of Romans, and perhaps the letter has arrived in Rome and, and is being read on, uh, on maybe a Sunday evening service or some uh, day of the week, and as everybody is listening to the first eight chapters be read, that Paul realizes that the Jewish Christians in that congregation that these eight chapters were going to produce questions within their mind. Now, as we study the first eight chapters of Romans, uh, you have to ask yourself whether you had any questions at all. 
I mean, for, as we're going through it, I think most of you are like me. We're going through it, line upon line, precept, truth upon truth and all, and all I can look at it and go, this is fabulous, this is cool, this is great, you know. This is wonderful news and description of salvation. And the, re- the reason that that's your reaction and my reaction for the most part in this room today is that you're a Gentile, uh, most likely. Uh, a non-Jew. Paul knew that the Jews that were listening to these first eight chapters would have questions arise in their mind, questions like, does the fact that we are God's chosen people not apply to us anymore? Or what advantage is it to be a Jew if God has now chosen to save Jew and Gentiles alike and on the same basis of faith in Christ? Or is it uh, is it, how is it and why is it that there are so few Jewish Christians in comparison to the number of Gentiles who are Christians? Or is God through with the Jewish people as a people and as a nation? And if God is uh, done with the children, uh, the nation of Israel, and it's been replaced by the church, uh, then what about all of those promises that are yet unfulfilled in the Old Testament that God had made under the Old Covenant and had made uh, uh, under the, uh, in the, the Old Testament? And these are the kind of questions that would have been swimming around in the minds of the Jews. And Paul was very, very familiar with them, being a Jew himself, but also in light of the fact that these were questions that he would have been answering uh, in every city that he went into in the course of his three missionary journeys and then in his own interactions with the Jewish people on a, on a private level. In, chapter, in, in verses 1 through 5 constitutes Paul's uh, very, very personal introduction to chapters uh, 9 through 11. And in this, uh, these five verses... Uh, Paul, despite being the apostle to the Gentiles, he affirms his great love for the Jews, and, uh, and again, being a Jew himself. And this expression of his love to the Jews and for the Jews was very, very important for Paul to uh, communicate, and, and important for a couple of reasons. First of all, the word on the street concerning Paul among the Jews was almost entirely uh, negative. They viewed him as a traitor to the Jewish people, as a traitor to uh, the Jewish uh, uh, faith. And they felt that because Paul was preaching uh, the gospel and calling on Jews and Gentiles to be saved and and putting their faith in, in Christ, that he was teaching against the law of Moses, he was teaching against the Jewish people, he was, uh, in fa- when in fact he was preaching the gospel actually as a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And Paul was in, informed. He didn't need to really be informed. He knew about it everywhere he went, but he was very much informed. Typically, when he, in Acts chapter 21, when he came to the city of Jerusalem and he was informed by the uh, Jewish Christian leaders there uh, of the attitude of the Jews toward him in, in the city. And they said, but we have, they, speaking of the Jews within the city of Jerusalem, but they have been informed about you that you teach all of the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Clearly, the Jews felt in general that Paul was uh, anti-Jewish. 
Another reason that Paul wanted to affirm his love toward the Jewish people was because he's going to say some things that are very hard for them to hear in these three chapters and going to be hard for them uh, to accept. There's very few people, and I think religious people are probably the worst, that uh, accept the, uh, and embrace the uh, proverb in the Old Testament that talks about faithful are the wounds of a friend, uh, that it's commendable. This is something that's valuable within our lives, that someone who uh, has a friendship with us, but the friendship does not negate the fact that they will tell us what we need to hear when we need to hear important things within our life. And Paul loved the Jewish people, but it wasn't uh, something that was going to keep him from expressing that love and telling them what they needed to know about Christ and, and about the salvation that, that is found in him. And so, uh, before he addresses all of their questions theologically, which he's going to address in these three chapters, he uh, begins to, uh, by revealing his heart to them. And really, he's modeling and he's affirming an old saying that maybe you uh, have heard. The saying goes something like this, people don't care uh, how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, That isn't always true, uh, but it is generally true of people. And Paul, in these three chapters, Paul is considered, even by secular uh, historians, to be one of the great intellects of human history. And he is going to… these three chapters are just a flash of what the Holy Spirit uh, does through this incredible intellectual uh, depth that the Apostle Paul had. But before he ever goes there… He wants them to know uh, that, that he loves them and he has a genuine uh, care for them. I mean, Paul himself would be the, the one who would write, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I've become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Notice that first that Paul strongly affirms the truth of what he is about to say to the Jews about his love for them in verse 1. You notice that he states it both positively and negatively. He says positively, I tell the truth in Christ. And then he states it negatively, I am not lying. And then Paul then calls three witnesses uh, to testify to the sincerity of the truth of his love for the Jewish people. And the witnesses were Jesus himself. He said, I tell the truth in Christ. And no matter what the Jewish people might have thought about him and and about and how uh, disbelieving they would be concerning Paul's heart of love toward them, Paul knew that Jesus knew how much he loved the the Jewish people. He brings the second witness uh, to his love being his conscience. In, In other words, when he spoke of his love for the Jews, he said this is coming from a genuine conscience, a sincere conscience from uh, within me. In other words, I can say this in all good uh, conscience. And then, then he brings the third witness out, and the third witness is the Holy Spirit himself, who indwelt Paul as a, uh, because Paul was a Christian, and he could be a witness to the genuineness of Paul's love for uh, the Jews. Now, 
When Paul speaks of his love negatively, he speaks of it positively. He, sp- he calls these three witnesses to the stand, so to speak, to testify of his love for the Jews. When he does all of this, he, he's not doing something unnecessarily, or he's not doing this as a ploy. I mean, all of this gives us a glimpse of how much Paul knew that the expression of his love for the Jewish people, to the Jewish people, would be received as being very suspect, and, uh, and if not a total denial uh, uh, of it. And in the light of how they had come to wrongly view him as an enemy to Judaism and to the Jewish people. Their depth of prejudice against Paul, uh, how they had convinced themselves of the fact that he was a hater of the Jewish people and and the law and the prophets and their heritage. Uh, Paul knew he had to affirm it in this kind of a way, and and even then it might not be believed, but he gives it a good good effort. Notice further in in verse 2 that Paul expressed his great sorrow, he declares, and continual grief over what? Over the Jewish unbelief concerning Jesus as their promised Messiah and, and thus their failure to trust in Him as their Savior. Now, Paul makes clear that this pain was caused by Jewish unbelief a little bit later in chapter 10, verse 1. Just turn a page over. I want you to see it with your own eyes. In chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God uh, for Israel is that they be saved. And when he talks about his great sorrow, uh, literally in the Greek, it speaks of grief. It speaks of a, a, the mental state of Paul, of pain and anxiety. When he talks about continual grief in the original language, it, mean, it, it isn't just grief, it's continual, ceaseless, unending, emotional anguish. And he says it's in his heart, it's in his, in his inner self. And Paul speaks of all of this as an expression of his love for the Jews. And, and how is it that great sorrow and continual grief in his heart can be made an example of his great love for the Jews? And, and the reason is, is because if you don't love someone, uh, then you don't hurt like this. And if he didn't love the Jewish people, especially in the face of their horrible treatment of him, then the natural reaction is to become angry, to become vengeful, to become bitter or offended, but not to hurt or to be pained in the way that Paul describes here. Love opens us up to a whole world of wonderful emotions, but it also opens us up to a whole world of painful emotions as well. But with Paul, any of us would look at it and say, what's the alternative, though? I mean, to live a life without love? And so this pain over Israel's rejection of her Messiah and the salvation found in him, it never went away for Paul. All day, every day. This is not hyperbole. He's not just saying this will sound good in the Bible. All day, every day, This hurt his mind, this hurt his heart. He never found any relief uh, from it. 
And then in verse 3, Paul takes the expression of, it, of his love even further when he writes, uh, astonishingly really, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Wow. That is a wow statement in the Bible, a book filled with wow statements. What Paul is declaring is this. The word translated accursed in your English Bible is anathema. That's the Greek word that is used in, in the original uh, of, uh, of the New Testament. And anathema speaks of being devoted to divine condemnation. It speaks of something that is under the very curse of God. So Paul is declaring that his love for the Jews was so great that if it were possible, he would have been willing to be eternally damned if it would mean the salvation of his brethren, the Jews. Now that, that is either someone who is lying, or that is, that is the most astonishing, I mean jaw-dropping expression of love that any Christian could ever make. Stop and think about it for a moment. It would be one thing to donate an organ like a, a kidney to a loved one. It would be an even superior thing if I were to lay down my physical life for the sake and the protection of a, a, a loved one. But it is an, another thing entirely to be willing to give up my salvation for the sake of another, to not only miss the glory of heaven, but then to endure God's anathema, to endure the judgment my sin deserves for eternity in Gehenna. But, but I don't think that was the greatest part of the sacrifice that Paul was communicating regarding this. He wasn't saying supremely, I'm willing to miss heaven and endure all of the horror of heaven in order that you might be saved. He was saying that, but not supremely, because you notice that he writes that he's willing to be accursed from Christ. Not merely accursed, but accursed from Christ. It wasn't merely that Paul loved them so much that he was willing to miss all of the glory, all of the purity, all of the, the unbroken peace of heaven for eternity, and instead find himself in an eternity of, of the judgment that, that uh, unforgiven sin deserves. But more immediately for the Apostle Paul, he speaks of what to him would be the greatest sacrifice of all, and that is not merely to be accursed, but to be accursed from Christ, to be separated from his personal relationship with Jesus, and to never experience the blessings of it again in his life. And all of this is the more astonishing, I think, when we consider what his relationship with Christ meant to him. In Galatians 2.20, he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of uh, God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. But in, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him. And all the way through this section, when Paul talks about knowing Christ, it is not an intellectual knowledge of Him. The word is gnosko. It speaks about an experiential knowledge of God. He's talking about his relationship with Christ. And he said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, on in the flesh, this will mean fruit uh, from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and go to heaven. No, that's not what he says. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better this is what the relationship with Jesus Christ meant to him. And you think about uh, those of us in the room here today who've known the Lord and were born again and we have a relationship with him and we've had it maybe for a week or maybe we've had it for 40 years and we see what the relationship with Christ comes to mean to us, what we come to depend upon, all of the blessings, not just salvation, but all of the blessings that have come into our life, that now for some of us, someone like me has been my portion daily for decades. And then you come and somebody were to come to you and say, listen, uh, uh, how, could you survive the removal of Christ from your life? Could you survive the removal of all of the blessings that he's brought into your life? And you would look at that and say, I don't know, I don't, wouldn't want to find out because I don't know that I could survive without it. And I think we sit here in this room and we realize, quite apart from heaven and hell, none of us could make it without this relationship that we have with Jesus and what he's brought into our lives. This is the love that the Apostle Paul had for the Jews. Not just heaven, not just hell, but the relationship itself. And to forego it for eternity, if it would mean, if it could possibly mean, that they might be saved. And all of this is the more amazing still to, to me when you cons to consider Paul's love here for the Jews, especially in the light of their treatment of him. And allow me just to read a handful of verses to you from the book of Acts to just prime the pump of our remembrance in terms of the treatment of the Jewish people, these people that he says that he loves in this way, and what their continual portion was toward him. 
immediately upon uh, being saved in, on his way to Damascus, and he goes into the city uh, of Damascus, and he ends up preaching at the synagogue there, and, and the need to be saved by trusting in Christ, and he preaches it to the Jews, and the reaction was ultimately, we're told in Acts 9, that after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They wanted to murder him. They wanted to murder him. Now, I don't know how many of us in this room will get up from this seats at the end of the service, pick up our kids or not. Uh, if you have them, you've got to pick them up. Uh, but if you don't have them, you don't have to pick up any kids. But then get up and head out to our car, and how many of us have lived even one day under the, the threat of being murdered? Or the knowledge that there is not just one person out there, but there is an entire group of people out there who want me dead. And I mean, if that was your portion, you would, anywhere you would walk, walk to the car, walk wherever you might, you'd be looking over your shoulder, wondering, is this going to be the person that's going to get me? This is what, you know, we read, <clears throat> excuse me, we read this kind of thing in terms of what was Paul's portion as it relates to how the Jews treated him, most often with a nice hot cup of coffee in our hands or a cup of tea, and we're reading it off of the pages of Scripture, which is wonderful. This was his life. He's expressing his love for people who treated him like this. And they did so from the very beginning. On his first missionary journey at Antioch of Pisidia, we're told that the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and chief men of the city, and they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. At Iconium, and a violent attempt was made by both the Jews and the Gentiles with their rulers to abuse and stone them, and they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. They make their way to Lystra, and then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul, and then so thoroughly that they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. On his second missionary journey at Thessalonica, but the Jews who were not persuaded became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Then on to Berea. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was preached by Paul in Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then on to Corinth. But they, when, uh, they, there they opposed him and blasphemed. At Ephesus, but when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew uh, the disciples, reasoning, reasoning daily in the school of Ty uh, Tyrannus. And so it goes on and on and on for Paul in all three of his missionary journeys. He writes the book of Romans in the winter prior to the end of his uh, third missionary journey. All of these things he had experienced already uh, from the Jews. Everything uh, as he writes these verses, one through five, in Romans chapter nine, uh, he writes it having experienced all of this persecution by the Jews. And it wouldn't get any better for Paul. All the way to the day he died, 
and was martyred and went to heaven, the Jews would dog him and they would persecute him. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and declared uh, additionally related to all of this, from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. We don't know where that happened in his three missionary journeys, but five times they lashed him with 39 stripes. It was enough to kill the average human being. He went through it five times, and that's what was done to him. So much that isn't even recorded within the, the book, of, book of Acts. Before we leave it, it is important to notice that phrase that Paul uses when he says, I could wish, because no one can give their own life for the salvation of another person. Jesus has already done that. I cannot be accursed in order to accomplish the salvation of another person. Jesus has already been cursed upon the tree of Calvary in order to provide salvation for man, uh, mankind. But Paul, and Paul knew that what he's talking about here in terms of giving up his salvation that they might be saved, that it's an impossible hypothetical, but it was the only thing that could approach an expression of the love that he felt for his fellow Jews. And in terms of Paul's heartbreak, you notice in verses 4 and 5, the source of it being broken over their unbelief. Uh, in the light of the privileges that the Jews uniquely have had in human history. The fact of the matter is the Jews, both then and now, they should have been, but we'll speak about back in Paul's days, they should have been the first in line in recognizing Jesus to be the Messiah and then putting their faith in Him as their Savior and then being an example to the Gentile world on, on uh, this issue, as opposed to what ended up happening, and that was that the Gentiles, in gigantic numbers, they beat a path past the Jews to the cross in order to put their faith in Jesus and be saved, while the Jews, by and large, sat on their hands in this regard. And the Jews, they possessed blessings and that, that no one else in the world had. And Paul, listen, he said in verse 4, they were Israelites. That is, they were uh, members of God's chosen people. He said, to whom pertain the adoption, verse 4. That is, that they were children of God. God adopted the nation of Israel to be His Son as He spoke through Moses to Pharaoh in accomplishing the Exodus. In, in, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The Jews had experienced God's glory, as Paul declares it in verse 4 relating to the Shekinah glory of God's presence, the symbol of God's presence with them. For 40 years, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night uh, led them through the, wander, uh, the wanderings of uh, the, the wilderness. I've never had a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud lead me one day in my whole life. And no other nation in the whole world at the time that it was going on experienced, the Jews experienced this alone. 
At the dedication of Solomon's temple, Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit comes with such a, a tremendous expression of His presence and His glory that not only did the entire uh, people that were assembled together fall on their knees and on their faces, but even the priests did. They'd never experienced anything like it. And this kind of thing was, was the portion of the Jews, all of the miracles that were expressions of the power of God and the glory of God, the manna, the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, nobody had that in Greece. Nobody had that in Scotland. Nobody had that in Russia. This was something that was unique to the Jews and, and to their history uh, with, with God. And then God's presence associated with the Ark of the Covenant, the lone furnishing found in the Holy of Holies in, in the tabernacle and then ultimately in the temple. And He dwelt among the Jews in a way that he did not dwell among any other people in the world. Paul said that they possessed the covenants. To, and for example, to Abraham, Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. They had been given the law, that is, that speaks of the law of Moses, God's commandments and His revelation of Himself, and the law of Moses constituting the Ten Commandments, but all 613 laws that made up the law of Moses. And they were given by God to the Jewish people uniquely, and not to be kept by themselves, but uniquely to them and entrusted to them in human history. And here you have laws that talked about how to govern themselves morally, how to govern themselves in their relationship with one another, how to govern themselves in their relationship with God, instruction concerning their religious life, and, and how to worship God. And with all of those laws, God gave them the blessing that if they would keep those laws, that He would uh, bless them. And you have to stop and think for a moment and, and just to realize that in the ancient world, that it, while the Jews were waking up every single day to the instruction of the law of Moses on their hearts and on the scrolls, uh, the rest of the world, the rest of the Gentile world woke up every single morning, every single day of life in, in a a comparative and absolute fog in terms of how to live, what is right, what is wrong, how to conduct ourselves in our relationships with one another. Who is God? How can He be worshipped? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And you think about it today, even in the, uh, the godless Gentile world today, in its rejecting of God, to wake up every single day independent of the Bible and the God of the Bible and imagine the enormity of the weight of waking up and now here I am, 
on my own, independent of God, and every day you have to define right and wrong, good and bad. You don't have God's definitions that are absolutely uh, foolproof and absolutely safe. It's incumbent on you to come up with that. And the Jews, by comparison, they woke up every single day and they had absolute clarity about all of these things and more. It was a tremendous privilege that the Jews had. They had the service of God, Paul says. They uniquely possessed and oversaw the sacrifices, the worship of God, and, and uh, the priesthood, uh, and, and all of our, uh, other instruction in terms of the temple and how to worship God. How to worship God in a way that pleases Him and blesses Him. No other group of people in the world were, were given that kind of clarity. And then they were of whom were the fathers, uh, Paul uh, speaks in verse 5. And he's talking here about their lineage. The lineage of the Jews boasted Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, each of the uh, fathers of each of the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. That was a part of their family tree. That was a part of their spiritual heritage. I don't know what your family tree is like, but I suspect it's inferior to the Romans, uh, 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 I mean, uh, Israel's family tree. I've got an uncle uh, that I love, and and he's no longer alive now, Uncle Donnie. Well, you know, you go up and you say, somebody says, tell me a little bit about your descendants. Well, I had an uncle named Uncle Donnie. It's going to get a collective yawn. Imagine being able to say, I'm a descendant of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And every Jew, both then and now, could declare it. These are privileges that are immense. Every one of them is priceless uh, on their own. And then as if he couldn't get any greater, Paul then declares, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. And it is the greatest blessing of all because they were the very people among all of the peoples of the world through whom God chose to bring the Messiah into the world, the Savior into the world, to bring Jesus into the world. And yet they, above all of the peoples of the earth, both then and now, have failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And at the very the mention of Jesus, Paul can't keep himself from entering into praise of Him. He says, "Who is over all and eternally the eternally blessed God, Amen." And he declares Jesus to be not only the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world, but declares Him to be the very Son of God, to be divine. And when he offers this praise up, as he's writing to these Jewish believers, and he offers this praise up uh, to uh, uh, Jesus, it's the, the praise that Paul desired that every Jew in the world would offer uh, to the Lord. Again, the Jewish people, They should have been the first in recognizing Jesus as their Messiah, the first to put their faith uh, in Him as their Savior, as opposed to watching the Jews flood toward Him and His offer of salvation and the forgiveness of sins while they uh, refused. Now, 
while I've spent most of our time in developing all of this, and I've done so uh, because it's so important on a couple of levels, next to the revelation that we have in the Word of God uh, in terms of value, the most valuable revelation we have in the Word of God is what it reveals to us about God Himself and about Jesus Himself. But any revelation I can find in the Scriptures that speaks to me of the Apostle Paul, what made him tick, what were the deep streams in his life, why was he the way that he was, that's invaluable. And the other reason that all of this is important is for the very reason that Paul is laying it out uh, here is because it lays a foundation for the next three chapters. And Paul is going to deal uh, immediately, as we will next week, with the, the single, the first great question of the Jews that he's going to answer in chapter 9 is the question of the Jew, the Jewish Christian asking, why is it that so many Gentiles trust in Jesus and so few Jews do? And Paul's going to address that. And all of this sets the stage for that. And it's a beautiful picture to us of Paul. But I want to close our time here today with just a couple of very, very brief applications. When I look at the Apostle Paul, and he's either lying in these five verses, or this is next to Calvary, one of the most astonishing expressions of love to be found in the entire Bible. It is a marvel how Paul's love for the lost world and his love for the Jewish people, despite how horribly and abusively they treated him, I read this love on this page, and it makes me stop before we ever get into six and everything else that comes out of that love. And it makes me ask myself, do I as a Christian, and this is not a guilt gotcha, I don't do that. I might have done it in the early years, I didn't even do it in the early years uh, knowingly. But we're all grown up people here today. And I have no interest in poking people in the eye or putting a knife in and twisting it. Aren't you the terrible Christian and can't you do better? We lay out what the Scriptures have to say. We bring our own motivation to walk with God into the room. And then we respond to the Scriptures as we like. But then to look at this. And to see this kind of love, I can't help in the privacy of my heart. You do it in the privacy of your heart. And say, does my love for the lost of this world even remotely approach what Paul describes here? And sometimes we can look at this and say, well, you know, he was an apostle. Or, you know, this is the kind of stuff they put in the Bible, but nobody expects us to live like this. I mean, Paul was an apostle. This is all part of the calling, having a love like this. No, this is not. The love isn't a part of the calling. The calling is the calling. 
and to stop and just look and say, is this how I view the world? You remember the Apostle Paul, most of us do, before he became a Christian. He was not this man. He was not remotely this man. Hating the Jews, uh, the Christians, persecuting them, consenting to their death, imprisoning them. Something happened in Paul's life that took him from that man and turned him into this man. And the single great thing, of course, is being born again and having God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit come into his life, come into our lives, and then in coming into our lives to bring this love into our lives. What has happened here in Paul's life, the love that he has for the world and even for his enemies, is something that is born into his life by the Holy Spirit. And so when I ask myself, and I do ask myself, and I say to myself, I do not want to live way below what I see that the Holy Spirit produced in the Apostle Paul if God will produce this same thing in my life as well. And when I look at Paul and I ask, what is the secret to this change and to the kind of love that this man is describing? And the answer number one is the person and work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And to again just sit in the privacy of our own heart, out of our own personal relationship with the Lord, and whatever He's called us to do as Christians, and to ask ourselves, does my love for the lost in this world approach this at all? Could my love for the lost in this world and even the, uh, the lost among my enemies be spoken of in all seriousness in the same breath with what we see here in these five verses. And if we stop and say, in the privacy of my own heart before the Lord, I'm so far away from that, I don't even know where to begin. And to realize that where we begin is to say to God, God, you are the one that produced this change in this man. And I know that it's not a miracle that is unique to him. That what you did by your Holy Spirit in giving him a love, not just for the body of Christ, but a love for the lost world and even enemies, uh, 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 his own enemies, that if you did it for him, that you will do it for me. And, you know, we can, I, can head into a whole, I can head into a whole big sermon on here or I can try and pump you up, but I can't try and pump you up because I'm no good at that. So we deal with, we deal with ideas, we deal with truth. It's the primary motivation in our walk with the Lord. And to just stop and to look at this, and it's not complicated. It's just a matter of in the privacy of my heart, as I look at Paul here, and I say, I want that. It begins with asking the Holy Spirit on a continual basis, 
Lord, work in my life by your Holy Spirit until you have produced this same love in me. The world that we live in is a very broken place, and it's a very divided place, and it is a very dangerous and, and subtle deceptions for us as Christians to make our identities in this nation or in any nation of the world our, our uh, primary identifications something other than Christian. And we get divided by politics. We get divided uh, on the basis of morality. We get divided, for us as Christians, it's very easy to cop an attitude toward the world as we see a persecution that is growing against us, an intolerance of us for the simple reason that we believe in God and believe His Word is true. You know, it's easy to bristle against that. It's easy to fight fire with fire related to that. Think about how Paul could have fought fire with fire in terms of his, the treatment of him by the Jews. But to really stop and, and, to, and, and, and to, to realize that the two most powerful weapons that we have as Christians in this world in terms of the advancement of the kingdom of God is love and truth. Those are our weapons. And to ask God, God, to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God, but then to ask God, I pray that you would produce this love within me. And God will be faithful to do it as he did it in the Apostle Paul. And to continue to pray until uh, he does accomplish it within our lives. The second key is we look at Paul here and say, how in the world, where do I get a heart like that? Well, we get it from the Holy Spirit. But the second place we get it is in prayer and through prayer. If you, and Paul comes to it. If you turn your page again, again to chapter 10, verse 1, he reveals it. He said, brethren, chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire, I mean, this, this is his longing for them to be saved, but he doesn't stop there. It's not just, I want all my friends and family members to be saved. He doesn't stop there. He said, my, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And the heart of Paul, the Apostle Paul that we see in these five verses is born out of the Holy Spirit, but also born out of prayer. And there's something that happens when we pray for our enemies or we pray with the loss. There's a communion that occurs with us between us and the Holy Spirit, between us and Jesus, where our heart then, the heart of Jesus for the loss, then becomes ours. You think Paul had it tough. I mean, Paul had it tough compared to me, for sure. Paul had it way tougher than me in terms of persecution and rejection and violence against him and all of that. But someone had it harder than Paul. Jesus had it harder than Paul. Because the cross of Calvary, covered by the spit of both Jew and Gentile, from that morning's uh, activities, 
and bearing the sin of the world. The cross at Calvary is the single greatest scene of injustice in human history. And on that cross, what did Jesus pray? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Did you know what you were doing before you became a Christian? We're all nuts. Did you think through the implications or the, re- the ramifications of what we just did? Stupid as could be with other people, but stupid as could be in the eyes of God. We're all, all covered by that prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Not just at the scene of Calvary, but all of us B.C. before coming to know the Lord. And then to remember those days and weeks and years. And to never expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian. They can't. Because it only happens by the Holy Spirit. And to begin to pray for people individually. Pray for this love for people to be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. But then to begin to pray for the lost and then begin to pray for specific people that are unsaved, and then to pray for those who are our enemies, and then to discover that if we will do that long enough, the heart that we see in the Apostle Paul here will be accomplished within us as well. And so there it sits. There it sits, as simple as can be. I'm going to do a Jericho march or something like that to try and get everybody. Okay, I'm going to do that. It's just this simple. This heart that we see here on the pages of Scripture by the Holy Spirit and this love for the world and even for our enemies comes by asking for that to be accomplished within our lives by the Holy Spirit. And then are we willing to begin to pray for those people by name And Paul is in essence telling us, if you do that, then Jesus will be faithful to take our heart, whose love is so conditional, and then substitute it with the heart of Jesus to where we see the lost and even our enemies the way that he sees them. That that exchange will occur. And then to realize, again in the privacy of our own heart, that to to the degree that that does not reflect my heart and attitude toward the world and toward my enemies is the degree to which I do not pray for them and I have not allowed that exchange to occur within my heart, an exchange that the Lord wants to accomplish. And it's this funny thing. He just lays it out here and says, in essence, this is where you'll find it. This is where I found it. And so it is with us. As you just got a couple more minutes left here. I was listening to a, a minister uh, teach recently. And uh, on, on my uh, iPod, you didn't need to know that, but I had a need to tell you. <laughs> and he, he talked about somebody that he had listened to that had this, um, this 815 principle in terms of evangelism. 
And, and, he, and the principle that this guy had come up with, and I think it's very, very good. He said the principle is that every single one of us as Christians, we have between 8 and 15 people in our life that we are supernaturally, divinely, uh, and strategically placed to reach them with the gospel. We have a relationship with them that no one else has. We have access to them that no one else has. They have access to us that no one else has. And the ability then out of that relationship, whether it's a family member, whether it's a co-worker, whether it's a neighbor, whoever it might be, to then look and to realize, to look at the people that are around us and who are the 8 to 15 people in my life that I, of all the Christians in the world, I am best equipped in order to reach them with the gospel and to not pass those group of people off to another group of Christians to try and to reach them with the gospel, but to make that group a matter of prayer. And if we make it a matter of prayer, it won't be long before we'll be chomping at the bit and looking for any opportunity to share the gospel with them as the Lord opens up the doors to do so. And if every Christian in the United States of America reached that 8 to 15 within their life, what a dramatic impact that it would have. You don't have to stop with that number. Reach everybody. And some of you, your circle of peers, and because of who you are and the number of people you know, it's a greater number, and you can take a greater number upon yourself. But the danger of ultimately as Christians over the long haul of things is to end up in this place where we're saved and we're on our way to heaven. And then we begin to cop the same attitudes of the world toward one another. We enter the fray on the same level that they do, and we no longer have a burden that people would be saved. And so the passage is an important one. Look at what Paul went through, and he maintained that burden for the lost in his own life. And he gives us insights into it and the secret to it here in this passage so that as we close in prayer here today and as we make our way through the rest of today and maybe find some quiet time with the Lord, to then ask the Lord, Lord, I ask in some measure that you would produce what I see in the Apostle Paul in me for your glory and for the good of this world and of the lost. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, I am and I, I suspect we all are just humbled by what we see in the Apostle Paul and the love that we see in him in the face of all that he had been through. And Lord, we know enough about the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian to know that this doesn't have its origin in him at all. But Jesus, we know that you have transferred your heart to him by your Holy Spirit and in the long communion and prayer between you and him. And Lord, we pray as a church today and we pray as individuals here today not just a prayer to end a service, but to beg you, please, 
to grab the hem of your garment, to beg you, to beg you, Lord Jesus, to help us not to fall into a loveless Christianity, a Christianity in which we're now saved and we don't care about who isn't saved as yet. And Lord, we're self-protective enough and, and concerned about our reputation enough and all these things to fall into that place. And we pray that you use these five verses to break us out of that today and into the glory and into the power and into the fruitfulness of what we see in Paul here and asking you to produce it within us as well. And we ask it in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.